Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Asatoma Sadgamaya Tamasoma Jyotirgamaya Mrittorma Amritangamaya Om Lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness to light. Lead us from death to immortality. Om Shanti 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 Peace, peace, peace. Good morning. Today's topic is a journey like no other. Now, when we think of this word journey, probably the first thing that comes to mind is a physical journey, taking a trip, going somewhere. But we can also take this word journey in a metaphorical sense. And so very often we'll say about somebody who has been through a particular particular series of circumstances or events, that that whole episode in the person's life was quite a journey. Now, there's also a general sense that we can take the word journey in to mean that life is a journey. Everybody's life is a journey. Now, with this human life, there are changes constantly. For example, we're all, we begin life as newborns. We become infants, toddlers, children, teenagers. Eventually, we reach young adulthood. Then we reach middle age, and then finally old age. So that part of the journey of life takes us through a series of physical changes. There are also changes in place. We may be born in one place, and we may grow up there. Or we may be born into a family that moves around frequently, so we experience growing up in a number of different places. Then when we become of age, we may leave home to pursue our further studies, to start a career, or to start a family of our own. And where we settle may be near our place of origin, or it may be quite distant. So in all of those senses, life is a journey. And then above that, there are the individual circumstances that happen to each person in each human life. And the possibilities are unimaginable. So I won't even begin to say anything more about them, other than that no two human lives are alike. So much for that aspect of journey, the fact that every human life is a journey. We're talking about a journey like no other. So what does that mean? What is this journey like no other? That is the spiritual journey. And that will be the focus of this morning's talk. Now, I'll begin by drawing two parallels to the geographical journey and the spiritual journey. A journey can only begin where you are. So let's say that you are in Chicago You cannot take a trip from Los Angeles to New York if you're in Chicago. That's not your beginning point. Now, the other point is that there are different modes of transportation, different ways of making the journey. So let's say that New York is our destination. You may fly to New York from Los Angeles. You may take the train from Chicago to New York. You may drive from Miami to New York, or maybe you may even sail on a ship from London to New York. In each one of these cases, the journey is going to be different. The time involved will be different, the amount of convenience, the scenery and circumstances you pass through along the way will be different. 
So in the same way, we can apply these general principles to the spiritual journey. Again, in the spiritual journey, we can only start from where we are. Where are we now? This is our starting point. And this has long precedent in Hindu teaching. The idea is that every one of us at every moment is the sum total of all of our previous experience. Everything that has happened to us in the past has gone to mold our character, our circumstances in the present. So for the spiritual journey, we can only start from where we are. The second thing, again, is that there are different modes of transportation. So in Hindu teaching, we have outlined the four basic paths, the four yogas. There is jnana yoga, the path of knowledge, bhakti yoga, the path of devotion, karma yoga, the path of action, and raja yoga, the path of management of one's own awareness. Now, these are very basic, and we'll find that in every religion or spiritual tradition, they have their own particular means of following a spiritual journey. But they all relate to these basic facts of the yogas, because the yogas in themselves relate back to the basic facts that we all think, we all feel, we have emotions, we all act, and we all have this awareness that needs to be brought under control. So these are the ways in which the life journey, our geographical journey, and the spiritual journey are similar. Now, back to the life journey for a moment. We go through periods that are very pleasant, and then there are times that are pretty awful. And this is true of every human life. Now, this, again, is something that we experience. But I want to draw here a distinction between the life journey and the spiritual journey. And that is that we don't know where the life journey is taking us. But with the spiritual journey, it is a homeward journey. It is taking us back to our true original self, that higher being that we in essence are. Whether you call that God, Atman, Brahman, that is the goal, the homeward goal of the spiritual journey. So the spiritual journey becomes a journey of self-discovery. It's a recognition of the Supreme Self, of, you, of who you truly are. Now, that self is unchanging, eternal. We look around us at the universe and we see everything in flux. So in our life journey, everything is constantly changing. Now, if I say that the spiritual journey is also all about change, doesn't that seem a little bit paradoxical if the goal of it is to find that changeless self? Well, we have to consider that the spiritual journey takes place in the context of this changing world. Now, everything in life has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so too with the spiritual journey. The beginning for the spiritual journey is where we are in the moment. The middle is this glorious adventure that lies ahead of us. And the goal, well, that's just indescribable. Every one of us faces a number of obstacles in the life journey, in the spiritual journey. So how do we address and overcome these obstacles? Now, we're all very different. No two of us are alike. And again, according to Hindu teaching, you know, we are all the sum product of an individual and unique past. Now, the basic idea here is, in Hindu teaching, that everyone is going to reach the goal. No one will be left out. No one will be forgotten. And so, whether our journey is short and direct, 
or if it's long and winding, it doesn't matter, because in the end, everyone succeeds. Now, the physical journey always involves packing, taking items along with us. So just imagine you're going on a trip. What are you going to need? You're going to need cash. You're going to need credit cards. You're going to need clothing. You're going to need shoes. Maybe something to read. Maybe gifts to give to people who we plan to visit along the way. In this day and age, your electronics, your cell phone, your laptop, maybe a tablet or an iPad. So all of this stuff. So the first thing we notice is this baggage can be very cumbersome and heavy. The other thing is, along the journey, you tend to buy things, maybe gifts for people back at home, maybe souvenirs or other items for yourself. And very often, when you come home from a regular journey, you have more stuff than when you set out. Now, this is the one place where you can draw a very stark contrast between life's journey or a physical journey and the spiritual journey. Now, imagine yourself in Honolulu in the hotel room. And this is the day of your departure homeward. And you're looking there at that grass hula skirt you bought the night before at the luau. <laughs> at the moment, in the spirit of the moment, it seemed like such a good thing. Maybe I should say in the spirits of the moment. Maybe that third Mai Tai was not such a good idea after all. <laughs> but here you are, and you're thinking, how am I going to pack that? How am I going to get it to the airport? When I get it to the airport, I'm going to have to pay an excess baggage fee. And then when I get it home, where am I going to keep it? I'm going to have to find a place to store it. And what good is it? It's just going to be taking up space for something else that you know might be better. And so this is very interesting because this hula skirt becomes a very apt metaphor for the baggage that we carry along on life's journey. Now, the spiritual journey, as I said, is an entirely different matter. And it can be summed up in nine words. Letting go of that which you do not need. We find this as a teaching in every religious uh, tradition. Uh, in the Hindu tradition, very often this message is produced in words like renunciation, austerity, non-attachment. But do those sound like they were much fun? Do these really sound like things we want to do? So let's start afresh and put an entirely new spin on this idea of renunciation or non-attachment or austerity. Let's call it letting go of that which you do not need. And so what does that hula skirt represent? Letting go of that which you do not need. Let it go. In other words, look inside of yourself. Make a list of all the traits and characteristics and emotions, ideas, habits that are weighing you down or holding you back. Every one of them has this sort of baggage. It's very personal. Uh, everybody's list will be different, but we can just give a few examples which are fairly general. We probably all have these things in our lives. Stress, anxiety, anger, attachment, ingratitude, a poor self-image, and the awful need to be right. Now we're going to talk about some of these things, but just think of each one of these traits, each one of these unwanted traits, as an ugly, wilted, discolored blossom strung together in a poisonous garland. 
And then just think of this poisonous garland as that ideal accessory to wear with that hula skirt. <laughs> now, uh, these negative traits most likely have their roots in what we call samskaras. A samskara is an impression made upon the mind by something that has happened to us in the past. And it's still there. Beneath the surface of our conscious mind, there are all these samskaras. And what do the samskaras do? They color the personality. They form your outlook. They mold your opinions. And they create patterns of behavior and habits. Now, habits can be good or they can be bad. But the ones we're talking about here are the ones we need to let go of. So, uh, more about what is letting go. That's a good question. What is letting go? And one of the answers is, letting go is not holding on. Letting go, though, is more than just this act of release. Letting go is also about not stagnating. So in other words, we can say letting go is moving on. If you're stagnating, it's not a journey. Now let's take a closer look at some of these negative traits I mentioned and see if we can find some sort of insight from them. What are these traits? How do they work? Now we find in this examination that these negative traits are very often related and they interact with each other. And so we find that all of these ugly blossoms in this poisonous garland are joined in this endless circle without any apparent beginning, without any apparent end. And at any moment, we can break into this circle and we find ourselves getting caught up in it. And the Bhagavad Gita gives a beautiful, beautiful example of this in the second chapter, where Sri Krishna advises Arjuna, dwelling on the objects of sense makes attachment to them grow. From attachment comes desire, and desire thwarted flares to anger. Anger confuses the mind, and confusion drives out mindfulness. With mindfulness gone, understanding fades, and lost understanding leads to ruin. This is a very powerful passage from the Bhagavad Gita. Now let's look at it a little more closely. It begins with the phrase dwelling on the objects of sense. Why does he say that? What does it mean? There's a root cause to this. I'm going to sum it up in a phrase, a fairly memorable phrase that you may or may not heard of before. The root cause of why we dwell on all these objects of sense is the smallness of you. Now, the smallness of you means the human personality, the ego sense, the sense of separate individuality. And this ego creates this self-definition. And remember, to define is to limit. So the moment I define who I am, I'm also defining who or what I am not. And I find that the who or what I am not is overwhelmingly larger than what I am. And so I'm suddenly confronted because of affirming the sense of ego, of individuality, I'm confronted with this overwhelming sense of my own limitations and deficiencies in the face of this vastly overpowering what I am not. Now, separate personalities will have distinct 
experiences of this wide world beyond the senses, beyond the narrow borders of the body-mind complex that the ego defines. We experience this whole world outside of us through the mechanism of the five senses. They send in information on what we hear, see, smell, taste, and touch. It's all part of being alive, and that's a good thing. But there's a problem. There's nothing wrong with sensorial experience, with knowing the world outside of ourselves. But all too often we miss the point, and we fixate on things. We get the idea that if I can have this or that, I will be happy. Now this perception of, of things outside of ourselves can then lead to the sense of mental attachment. And then we think, I like that. It will make me happy. And the attachment, in turn, leads to desire. I like that becomes I want that. But what is a desire but an acknowledgement that something is lacking, that something is missing? A desire is an acknowledgement of our own deficiency. And this is a very powerful tool that the ego uses to hold on. And so this leads to another idea. The desire grows and takes hold of the mind, and I want that becomes I really want that. I need that. I've got to have it. And then what happens is that unfulfilled desires, if we try to fulfill the desire but we do not succeed, the unfulfilled desire leads to a sense of failure or frustration or anger. And then what happens is the downward spiral gains momentum. Anger flares up, and when anger flares up, as Sri Krishna explained, we lose our bearings. The clarity of our better judgment vanishes. Usually that better judgment is born of earlier experience, and then it becomes forgotten in the heat of the moment. And then that leads to our thinking being put in disarray. And when that happens, we fly out of control, and then the events fly out of control and it's not going to end well. So this was the whole idea that Sri Krishna explained in that passage from the Gita. Now, we can take this observation of mental events a step further. So we've already mentioned things like ingratitude, stress, anxiety, all of these negative traits. And one of them that I mentioned was the awful need to be right. So let's look at this a little more closely. The awful need to be right is a kind of mental attachment, a mental and emotional attachment. It's a holding on. And remember, holding on is not letting go. We can become so attached to our own version of the truth because we live in this world of our own making. Now, there is a material world out there, granted, and we all experience it through our five senses and the information that comes in. But then, we interpret that information. All of this information is filtered by the mind, and then it becomes colored by the lenses of our past experience, by those samskaras dwelling within us. And then it becomes evaluated and judged by the ego. Now, when we find then that we do not agree with other people on our view of the world, we might become annoyed with them. We might even become angry, we might become argumentative, and that can even become abusive. Now, Sri Krishna explained this, how one thing leads to another, that simple 
little dwelling on the object of sense goes to this whole downward spiral, and in the end, it's a mess. So, what is the cause of all of this, this awful need to be right? Again, it goes back to the insecurity of the smallness of you. No matter how great you think you are, how intelligent, how successful, how open-minded, how wise, there's always going to be somebody else who outshines you. And that causes a sense of anxiety. And this need to be right becomes a defense mechanism. Now, there's a flip side to this coin. And that is called, I am not good enough. Both of these are the ego's response to the sense of deficiency. Now, no one, least of all a spiritual aspirant, should ever think that I am not worthy. This just plays into the ego's deception, this will to hang on. And so we cling to the smallness, and we fail to recognize the higher self, our true being. And if I am not good enough is our frame of reference for everything that we do and say and think, where does that take us? Now, recall again, Sri Krishna said, little faults lead to large consequences. But there is a corrective. And in the verses that follow, he tells what it is. He says, it's non-attachment. And again, let's substitute that other phrase, letting go of that which you do not need. Now, let's also explore in more depth this idea of the smallness of you. Uh, going back to the Upanishads, in the Shvetashvatara Upanishad, we find a wonderful uh, verse spoken by the sage Shvetashvatara. And here's what he says. The individual soul should be recognized as a fraction of a hundredth part of the tip of a hair, again divided a hundred times, yet it partakes of infinity. So here we have him expressing in this beautiful, beautiful language the insignificance of the individual ego self, but also its glorious potential. So we have the capacity to partake of infinity, the spiritual journey has a very real purpose and a very real goal. It's letting go of that smallness of you, realizing the Supreme Self, the Infinite Self, one with the Divine. Now, as we begin the spiritual journey, we let go of negative traits and habits. Again, a journey has a starting point. So look at where you are. What is your starting point? You can identify the obvious things that need to be let go of. And what happens is, once you do let go of them, subtler things come to the surface. And you suddenly become aware of things that you do or think, attitudes you hold, that just went unnoticed before. But suddenly now they loom much larger in your conscience. And that can hurt. But it's a good thing. Because you've been able to identify them as well, and now you can work on letting them go. So letting go doesn't happen all at once. It's a gradual process of spiritual purification. And this leads to a greater understanding. So deeper than relinquishing all of these negative habits, either the big obvious ones or the subtler ones, it leads to the idea of letting go of that which holds on to them. And this is a whole new phase of the spiritual journey. Letting go of the ego sense itself letting go of the smallness of you. Now, the immediate 
reaction here is one of fear. The idea, I'm going to lose something. And yes, you will. You'll lose that inferior selfhood that you've been misidentifying with. But this opens you up to expansion into the larger, better sense of self, the one that can partake of infinity. Now, in doing this, you also become an observer. First of all, the outer world is still there, so you observe the events, the happenings in the world around you. But you also observe your own inner feelings, your ideas, your moods, your thoughts, everything that arises within the mind. Now, being an observer happens. It just happens as a result of letting go of everything else. It's a natural process. But why wait for that to arise naturally? Because you can consciously and actively try to be an observer before it begins to happen spontaneously. So consciously try to be an observer of this vast panorama of life, just to witness what's going on around you. This is a spiritual discipline, and it is one that will ease and hasten the journey. Now the world will still be there with all of its ups and downs, but it can no longer seize and hold you captive. You will observe everything around you serenely, and you will act wisely and without attachment. Now remember, all actions bear consequences. And in this thought, you can choose by being an observer to create a new course and no longer aimlessly wander hither and thither. You can choose a new course that will direct you toward that ultimate spiritual homecoming. Now, so far we've focused on negative traits and ideas. And they've all been different. For example, some people are by nature, it seems, angry. They're easily provoked. They walk around with a chip on their shoulder. These are the kind of people we like to avoid. Now, other people might be deeply jealous, and that jealousy leads them to be resentful. Are they good company? No, because how can you be happy in the company of someone who is not happy with himself or herself? Other people have a greed that can never be satisfied. And you have to be on your guard around these people because what happens if you have something they want? And then finally, there are many people who are motivated by hate, and hate arises from fear. And there's nothing more destructive than hate. We all probably have some of these characteristics or traits within ourselves, if even only to a small degree. And of course, all of us here have them only to a small degree. But the idea still is, let go. Now, each spiritual journey is unique. Each spiritual journey is personal, but also highly personalized. That said, there is one question that no one can avoid. We're going to call this the ticking clock. Looking around, you see that the world is in constant flux. Everything is changing from one moment to the next. This is a universal fact, and very often it is referred to by the word impermanence. Now, every religion has to address this in some way, and every religion does. And one of the big questions, of course, is the idea that the ego self itself is mortal. Now, in Hindu teaching, lifetimes come and go until we reach enlightenment. But before then, we are bound to this ever-repeating cycle of birth, life, death, rebirth, over and over, countless times. This is called samsara. And one of the translations of the word samsara is wandering or roaming. 
So we are all drawn on by our hopes and aspirations, and we're all driven to sidestep what we fear. And this becomes the nature of this wandering, this samsara, through lifetime after lifetime. And all the while we're seeking satisfaction in things that do not last. Again, the ticking clock. Now, you've probably all heard this paradoxical statement. The only thing in life that is constant is change. It's true. Impermanence is a fact of life. And when we think about impermanence, it can often lead to anxiety. Look at your lives. People come and go. Wealth and comforts may vanish. Activities change over time. A state of health can alter. And worst of all, death will someday rob us of our loved ones. And so this is something we live with. And nothing we do can change the fact that life is constantly changing. Everything is impermanent. Here one moment and gone the next. But this word moment has a twist and it becomes a powerful spiritual tool. First, ask yourself, how much of the time are your thoughts caught up with time, with the three aspects of past, present, and future? How often do you find yourself thinking about the good old days, maybe with fondness or with nostalgia? Or maybe you find yourself mourning for people who no longer are. Or, on a darker note, Maybe you find your mind attaching to unpleasant or painful memories. And when this happens, resentment grows, and this can seep into the present. Or maybe you dwell on past mistakes, and this leads to feelings of regret or guilt that become your unwanted companions in the present. Now, do we want to let the past ruin the present? Or let's look in the other direction, ahead. When you think of the future, do you anticipate that things will be better than they are now? Or do you have a feeling of dread over potential losses and misfortunes? How much of your mental activity is taken up with a past that is no more or a future that may never be? We all do it. And when we do, we're missing out on the present, on the present moment. And we fail to recognize that as a moment of opportunity and choice. And in the spiritual journey, every moment should be a op moment of opportunity and choice. So let's go even deeper with this idea of the moment. The moment is the eternal now. In this fullest sense, if we are living in the moment, we are disengaging the mind from the play of time and space. We're disengaging from happiness and its opposite. And when we're doing this, what happens to the mind? we are engaging with something greater, something that transcends all of the change of the um, created universe. So the spiritual journey is about leaving all of that behind, and we do so in the moment. Now to do this, what most of all has to be left behind is that ever-changing sense of who or what we think we are, that's troublesome smallness of you, now, the higher self, as I said earlier, call it Atman, Brahman, or God, is that changeless truth. And that changeless truth is what abides in the moment. Again, as the Shreyateshvatara Upanishad said, no matter how small and insignificant the individual self is, it has the capacity to partake of infinity. In other words, the capacity to abide in the moment 
and to connect with the divine. Now, one who partakes of this moment becomes imperturbable, the witness of all things, undisturbed. And so Hindu teaching is full of this idea of witness consciousness. We find it frequently. And I'm going to give one example from about a thousand years ago. Uh, the great sage and seer Abhinavagupta, who lived in Kashmir, he addressed the universal problems of life in the 11th verse of his poem, 12 Verses on the Highest Truth. And in this particular verse, as I read it, listen how he weaves together themes of time and change, the pains inflicted by the clashing of egos, the internal misery that the ego creates for itself, and the insubstantial nature of personal identity. And finally, at the end, the state of being a witness. Let accumulating time drive the moments onward. Let the creator assiduously create, or let a passion compelled by another lead to sore distress. Let these come about through the external sound and fury of the cosmic play, or through the internal doings of the embodied soul whose ongoing flow of ever-shifting self-definition seems as if founded on air. In this constantly changing grand delusion, am I not a spectator? He's speaking here about the serenity of this witness consciousness, to be mindful that every reaction stems from the ego. Abhinavagupta's definition of the ego was spoken from his own experience, and with the full measure of his poetic genius. He called it an ongoing flow of ever-shifting self-definition. What he wants us to think about here is that the sense of personal identity rests on nothing more than air. Now, he wants us to observe how we think of ourselves and become aware of how that sense of self changes from one moment to the next. Ask yourself, how do you feel about yourself during an ordinary day? For example, do you feel like you are a spouse, a parent, an employee, an employer, a friend, a teacher, a student? Which of these roles is the real you? Do you feel like the same person in each one of them, or do you feel somehow different? And which one is the real you? Then. Go even deeper. Consider this. When things are going well, nothing is bothering you, you might have a warm sense of satisfaction, of joy, of self-worth. But any unpleasantness at all, even a single unkind look or word from another person, can change all that in an instant. And then you may feel anger or fear or doubt or inadequacy. Again, ask yourself, which one is the real me? The miserable one now, or that happy, contented one an instant ago? And so Abhinava understood that this I, who I think I am, is as if founded on air. This phrase expresses just how fragile and insubstantial the sense of personal identity can be. Now, the spiritual journey is about leaving all of that behind leaving behind that smallness of you that is always susceptible to outside influences. And to leave that behind is to embrace the unchanging nature of the higher self, the Atman. And we do this through being a spectator, as Abhinavagupta said, or a witness. 
Now, so far, we've talked about a lot of the unwanted baggage we accumulate and drag along through the journey of life. All of that which we need to discard in the course of the spiritual journey. And that is part of the picture. But any point in the spiritual journey can and must also embrace the positive. For every negative thing in our lives, there is something positive. And that positive can be of great help in the spiritual journey. And here I'm going to invoke another travel metaphor. Food. Anytime we set to go out on a geographical trip, we know that food is going to play a big part in our experiences. So let's just imagine that we've arrived in Sweden and we've been taken to this magnificent smorgasbord. We see all of these choices laid out before us, delectable, wonderful choices. Now, some may be better for us, or we may like some better than we would like others. So there are pros and cons with every one of these dishes. For example, if you don't like fish, you're not going to go for the several preparations of herring that are essential to any Swedish smorgasbord. But don't despair, because there's plenty of other choices. So there's something there to please every palate. Now, the spiritual journey is like that smorgasbord. It lays out before us an array of possibilities. So let's sample a few of those. How about the starter course? Right action is a very good place to start. Now, in the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali named this as basically his first of the eight steps of yoga. He called it yama, meaning restraint. And it has five parts. The five parts are doing no harm to others, being truthful, in other words, not lying, not stealing, observing sexual propriety, and refraining from greed. Now, when we do this, our relationship with other people and the whole world around us changes. It becomes harmonious if our behavior is that excellent. So ask yourself, if there's no peace without, if we're not peace with the world around us, how can we find peace within? So this starter course, this yama, these restraints, is excellent. And this is a universal teaching. It's found also in the Judeo-Christian tradition. The last five of the Ten Commandments correspond very, very closely to the five precepts of Yama. Another good course early on in the meal is the company we keep. Now, on the spiritual journey, we like to think that it's a journey of self-transformation. We're trying to become better people. And so the company we keep should be understanding, like-minded, supportive, maybe even sharing our aspirations. And even better, if the company we keep has already had a glimpse of what lies ahead on the journey, so much the better. So these types of associations create a sense of shared purpose, and they engage us to keep our sights on the goal. Now, in Hindu tradition, there is one special association, and that is the relationship of the disciple and the guru, the aspirant and the holy person. Now, it's early in the days of the Upanishads, even thousands of years ago, we find many stories of seekers who are turning to the guidance of a holy person. And why is that? Because the guru has already been there where they want to go. Now, just ask yourself, if you have to cross through a dense, dark forest, do you prefer to blunder through it on your own? Or would you like to have the guidance of someone who's been there before, who knows all of the obstacles and can prevent you from making wrong turns. There's also another advantage to this guru-disciple relationship, and that is that it is extremely personal. 
It's one thing to hear spiritual teachings from a pulpit or to read them in a book, but it's quite another thing entirely to know that what you are receiving personally from the Guru has been passed along from generation to generation in an unbroken flow for thousands of years. Make no mistake, there is power in that flow. Now, after we've had our appetizers, we go on to the main course. And any main course, of course, will have more than one ingredient. It will be a dish you know, cooked up with the expertise of the chef. But in all of these main courses, there is one essential ingredient, spiritually speaking, and that is looking inward. Now, this will take many forms. So, for example, looking inward can entail prayer, contemplation, meditation, and silence. Okay, prayer. Prayer is talking to God. It directs us inward and forms a bridge to the divine who rests at the very heart of our being. But, as in real life, some of us tend to talk too much. Prayer shouldn't be one-sided. We shouldn't do all the talking. If we do, it's not prayer. It's monologue. So prayer engages us in a relationship with God, whoever or whatever that God may be. And in a relationship, there's always give and take. Once we've had our say, then it's time to shut up. We have to listen in order to hear that inner voice speak. There must be silence. And what is this silence? Such silence is more than the absence of sound. Mental silence is something palpable in which the divine presence makes itself known. In the commentary in the Brahma Sutra, Shankaracharya referred to a lost Upanishad in which a disciple named Badwa questions a guru named Bhaskali about the nature of Brahman. And the teacher remains quiet. And after a while, Badwa repeats the question, more silence, and then for a third time he repeats the question. And at that point, Bashkali replies, I've already told you, but you do not understand. The self is silence. Now, the self is also love. In the Christian New Testament, in the first epistle of John, we have this verse, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Now, before you dismiss this as feel-good rhetoric or sentimental claptrap, just be aware that the larger context here of this verse is knowledge, knowing the nature of God, and knowing that the nature of God is love. In Hindu teaching, we find that knowing the nature of the self is also recognizing it as divine, as satchit ananda, and that ananda is love. So our own higher self is divine, and that is the bliss. That is a love such as we cannot even imagine, yet it lies at the core of who we are. Now, as we progress on the spiritual journey, love will become more and more evident in the way we think and speak and act. And we find ourselves eventually loving to love. We become so saturated in love. We become so saturated in God. And that love can only overflow. It has nowhere else to go but out into the world around us. So connecting is very important. This is a part of this divine love, a part of the spiritual journey. But to connect with others, to love others, first, you have to love yourself. And what is that? 
Loving yourself means shedding any feelings of unworthiness, ceasing to think that I am not good enough, taking down that wall of separation that is built of the bricks of I, me, and mine, letting go of the smallness of you. And once you can do that, and once you can connect through silence with the God within, you connect with your own higher self, whose nature is love. Now such love is utterly selfless. It flows out in the forms of compassion and service. In the Vedanta tradition, we call this karma yoga, worshiping God through service to your fellow human beings. And there's a mantra for this serving, uh, something always to keep in mind, and that is, it's not about me. Again, it is utterly selfless action. And this is because karma yoga, like all of the other yogas and spiritual paths, is a means of letting go of the ego. It's not about me. Now that we've sampled the variety and richness of this smorgasbord, let's have dessert. And after this rich, rich meal, I can think of no better dessert than simplicity. Keeping it simple is a principle so obvious that we fail to notice it. Throughout the millennia, philosophers and theologians and ordinary men and women have spent unfold time and energy trying to figure out the meaning of life. What's it all about? And the more they think, the more complicated it gets with all their theories and theorizing and doctrines and dogmas. And then the more confusing it becomes. So why waste all that time and energy tying the mind into knots? Or as I like to put it, why waste all that time and energy building long sentences between ourselves and the silence? Now the Upanishads speak of God, the Supreme Self, as one without a second. What can be simpler than that? It is a simplicity beyond all thought. And if God is the ultimate simplicity, then the closer we come to God, the simpler things should become, the simpler we should become. And as we approach the simplicity, all confusion vanishes. We awaken to the inner light, we recognize our own perfection, and we become one with the divine reality. So in the end, this journey like no other is truly our homecoming. I'll close with a chant. Om Ardhvam Jwalati Jyotir Ahamasmi Jyotir Jwalati Brahma Hamasmi Ahyohamasmi Brahma Hamasmi Ahamasmi Brahma Hamasmi Ahamevahamam Juhomi Swaha The light within me shines, I am the light. The light that shines brightly, I am that Brahman. That which I am is nothing but Brahman. I am and I am Brahman. I myself offer myself into the infinite light, which is myself. Om Shanti 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 Peace, peace, peace. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.